So, Miles, I know the M-Squad exists in the Marvel Universe, but do the Ghostbusters? I mean, does Marvel even have ghosts for them to bust? They've gotta. After all, Ghost Rider's gotta ride something. Point. Point. That said, on the X end of things, ghosts tend to be kind of a psychic issue. Like, even if you discount disembodied psychic entities like Malice or the Shadow King, you've got Legion, Madeline Pryor, heck, even Jean Grey was haunting her teen self for a while. Now that I'm thinking about it, do the X-Men have any non-psychic ghosts? Hmm. Uh, Jeffrey Garrett, I guess. What did he haunt? The school during the Academy X days. He was trying to scare students away so that they wouldn't die like he had. How'd he die? Well, he got stuck. In the danger room? No, no. Mid-teleport, when the mansion blew up. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 423 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the homestretch. Uh, specifically, the homestretch which is farther away from our home, which is to say, in uh, the British Isles, which is to say Excalibur. Because I guess X-Factor's also in its homestretch. Yes. To, to Excal- Excalibur is working its way towards a slightly less abrupt ending, at least. There is that. Uh, we were talking before the episode, listeners, about things going out with a banger with a whimper, and we realized that Excalibur goes out with a whimper, and X-Factor very specifically and literally goes out with a bang. Uh, but more on that later. Now, we covered Excalibur relatively recently, or at least we covered Excalibur tie-ins. Um, this, this feels like a quicker return than usual. Yeah, we covered the Colossus and Megan one-shot, and that one issue of X-Men Unlimited that told us what finally happens to Amanda Sefton, but those aren't Excalibur proper, and these issues are. Well, anyway, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, especially before we even talk about these comics, and talk about these comics we shall, for that is our mission here at Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. We talk about all the team books, damn it, and here we have three issues of Excalibur for you. So given that... Even though we covered Excalibur-related stuff relatively recently, I feel like we should maybe give some update on, you know, what Excalibur's been up to, what their deal is, who's on the team, all of that fun. Well, Excalibur remains Europe's premier superhero team. They're based out of the Muir Island Research Center off the coast of Scotland, and they're pretty much like any other superhero team aside from that. As has been the case since the team's founding, Excalibur is made up partially, but not entirely, of mutants. On the mutant side are three former X-Men, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and Shadowcat, along with former new mutant, Wolfsbane. Nightcrawler is leading the team these days, and as he does so, he has been feeling increasingly guilty about not being there for the X-Men as they were pulled into various and increasingly traumatic crossover events, most prominently Operation Zero Tolerance. But this has really been going on for him since Onslaught, and especially since Professor Xavier was arrested at the end of that story. Very much so. On the mutant-slash-fairy side of things is Megan, the empathic elemental founding member of Excalibur, who's currently engaged to Brian Braddock, himself formerly Captain Britain, who has been taking some time off after losing his powers for reasons way too boring to recap here. Wait, is, is Megan a mutant? 
Megan is officially a mutant. The comics have sort of gone back and forth on whether she was just a magical being or just a mutant, and I think we've settled on a little of both. So, on the non-mutant, or at least not yet retconned as mutant side, are Douglock, a techno-organic young alien, Lockheed, a small purple alien dragon who only shows up when the writer remembers he exists, and Dr. Moira McTaggart, the brilliant human scientist who runs the research facility. Moira is the first human, yes we know, to contract the mutant-targeting AIDS allegory, the legacy virus, and she recently put herself into a research quarantine to figure out a cure or die trying. After Moira's foster daughter, Wolfsbane, jumped in to try to support her, Douglock was inspired by his crush on Wolfsbane to hack the lab to let them both out, figuring that the ambiguous information about the legacy virus implanted into his memory banks in, you know, an earlier issue might help solve the conundrum. Spoiler. Nah. Needless to say, Wolfsbane is pretty pissed. And as for Moira, that's a little more complex. And that brings us to Excalibur number 121, with friends like these. This issue is written by Ben Robb, penciled by Trevor Scott, inked by Andrew Popoy, colored by Kevin Tinsley, lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft's Kiff Scholl. Mel Ruby was briefly a regular penciler. Uh, yeah, he's gone. Uh, here we'll have Trevor Scott and Dale Eaglesham trading off basically till the end of the series. Now, as you may recall, when last we saw Excalibur, they had gotten a surprise visit from Israeli superhero Sabra, who told them that there were three figures in Israel wreaking massive havoc, and the three figures corresponded to three of Legion's known personalities. That's David Haller, the son of Charles Xavier and Gabriel Haller. So Legion's supposed to be dead at this point, right? Yes. And in fact, he is. Um, and... I, I gotta say, though, Sabra makes everything so much more dramatic than it has to be. Like, she could just show up and be like, we think Legion's just showed up in Israel. Can you lend a hand? Like, it's not like the situation is subtle. It's not like he's not doing stuff that's visible for miles around. I mean, Jay, if characters were direct about these things or ever used the phone, our comics would be like half as long. Eventually, what we find out is that Sabra specifically sought out Excalibur because they're mutant underground members. And she is likewise a member of, of this is this is Xavier's secret network of mutants, his mutant underground, which always seems like it's going to become a bigger thing than it ever actually is. Yeah, I love the concept, and it's hinted at all across the 90s, doesn't really go that many places— but it's kind of cool, and it also sort of emphasizes the fact that Excalibur has really been ambiguous in their relation to the other X-teams for a long time. Are they just another X-team? Are they entirely separate and Europe-specific? Or in this case, are they linked, but indirectly, to Xavier's various teams? The question of whether or and to what extent the members of Excalibur are also X-Men is, of course, one that's been dogging several of them in particular, most notably Nightcrawler. Um, and we'll continue to for the issues that we're talking about here. So Excalibur shows up in Israel, and Sabra greets them by reciting their dossiers unflatteringly back at them, because she's good at making friends. I like how at the end she goes up to Colossus, and the rest of Excalibur's like, oh boy, let's see what she says to him. And she just describes his powers and his past, and then he is says he's a strong guy with the soul of a poet. And that's it. Yep. I mean, he's been through enough. He doesn't need to be made fun of on top of all the tragedy doesn't he, though? Yeah, well. So Sabra's interesting. She's an Israeli superhero, and as you might imagine, that comes with a lot of history and a lot of politics and ultimately a lot of controversy. 
We're not going to go into that now because the issue really isn't very much about her, but I will say there is a fascinating and very spirited discussion of the character in the comments on our site for episode 394, where she previously showed up. Here, yeah, she's a jerk, but, I mean, she seems to at least kind of have a good heart. And we'll link back to that thread in the visual companions of this episode. So, they all fly to the site of the most recent Legion or apparent Legion incident, and Megan em- empathically reconnoiters ahead. How does this work exactly? Oh, it's really cool. The narration mentions that she's looking for excessive emotional upheavals or atmospheric disruptions, which makes sense. And that's actually a really cool use of her powers. That's the thing. Like, we've mostly seen Megan's empathy in the past manifest by her appearance changing to match whoever she's around or whatever is desired by whoever she's around. But the idea of her being able to tap into sort of ambient emotional currents and then to use the elemental portion of her powers to tap into manifestations of different powers— Yeah, that really would make her a good tracker, wouldn't it? Extremely. And when she senses Legion's personae, she, her face stretches out vertically. And actually, specifically, um, she, she, her appearance changes in a way that evokes Sienkiewicz's Legion. You know, I hadn't made that connection, but you're right. I don't know if that was intentional, but it works. I just figured with all the electricity around her, she looked kind of like Blanca using his powers from Street Fighter 2. But uh, maybe your example's more relevant. Then she turns a bunch of somersaults. (laughs) She does! She holds back for two seconds, then forward and punch. Or is it kick? I don't know. I was always a Honda guy. Anyway... Kitty is grumbling about Sabra being a jerk. Piotr is sympathetic to her. And then, like, Kitty kisses Colossus on the cheek, but the way the art is, it looks like the angriest kiss ever. Like, she's scowling as the word smooch appears above them. Is this better or worse than that one time that there was that angry kiss between the Punisher and some lady and the sound effect was smack? Oh, nothing is better than that kiss. Um, of since, Miles, since the invention of the kiss, there have been five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure, the most smack. This one left them all behind. (laughs) But not this one, the one with the Punisher. Oh, well, obviously. So, speaking of Kitty looking really angry, this is assisted by her having... You guessed it, and you'll finally have the opportunity to once again take a drink, because Kitty has a new costume. Yeah, I think that's a finish your drink cue. Uh, I mean, she'll get more new costumes, but uh, yeah, it's been a while. Just go ahead and finish your drink. This one's boring, though. Like, it's it's really boring. It's just a black unitard. It's a black cat suit with, like, a really thin domino mask. It kind of reminds me of something Catwoman would wear. And she switched costumes in part because she just split with her boyfriend, Pete Wisdom. And that's unusual to me. I mean, yes, yeah, she's probably in a bad mood, so a darker costume, I guess, makes sense. But you would think, having lost that connection, she'd fall back on her friends, her former X-Men friends in Excalibur, and would really want to keep the blue and yellow uniform reminiscent of an X-Men training uniform that she'd been wearing. Or go back to her excellent poofy sleeves. Oh, those poofy sleeves were so good. She wore those so briefly. Ah, oh, so good, though. So good. Uh, Sabra, meanwhile, casually insults Nightcrawler a lot. Uh, she mentions that she's considered joining Excalibur, that Professor X was encouraging her to, and she's sure she'd be a far better leader than he is, and also she thinks his plan to take on Legion just sucks. And also she thinks that his hair is stupid, and his shirt is dumb, and he's just a jerk and he smells bad. While they argue en route, Legion, or what they think is Legion, currently has Jerusalem under siege. 
but it can't be Legion exactly because this this isn't, you know, switching personalities. This is three distinct people who are all present at the same time. But those people are Legion's personalities. We've got Jack Wayne, the telekinetic. We've got Cindy, the pyrokinetic, and we've got Jamail, who's the telepath. And he is technically not one of Legion's personalities. He's technically a separate person um, who just lives there. But there's no time to figure this out now, because of course we have to have a big fight. And for all that Sabra is, of course, always the badassest of badasses, she does not play well with others, and she's also never fought these guys before, so she immediately gets her ass handed to her, while Excalibur proves themselves a well-oiled teamwork machine. And part of what that teamwork accomplishes is thinking a little outside the box for the fight. And talking to Jamail, historically the part of Legion's mind who was by far the most reasonable. Possibly because, again, he's the part that isn't technically Legion. So he finally telepathically explains to Nightcrawler what's going on. David, Legion, is dead. Uh, The three of them are disembodied spirits. And he's ready to move on, but he can't on his own and the other two aren't. And he also tells Nightcrawler that Megan is the one who can fix this, and Megan immediately does. She, I guess, makes them want to be dead for real, or or at least to ascend and to move on to whatever comes next. And they do. Another cool example of how Megan can use her powers. She essentially is replicating the feelings of calm that can come with certain aspects of a near-death experience, which totally makes sense for her. This is interesting, though. Like, Legion's personalities being disembodied ghosts, I mean, okay, it's a comic book, I'll allow it, I suppose... Jamail was a real person, but Jack and Cindy were just manifestations that were sort of created by Legion's mind. So, it's odd they're still around. I mean, I guess Legion technically will be back a number of times, so, you know, maybe he's not fully separated from the mortal coil. Or maybe they existed independently sufficiently enough to basically have their own ghosts. Which is actually a really cool concept, and the way Legion develops over time, the way he'll be written, especially by Cy Spurrier, like... He just has, well, a a legion of personalities in there, an unlimited number of different entities. And the idea of them all being that independent, of them having sort of a literal independence as well as the way they manifest inside the visualized world of his own mind, that's pretty cool. The question is whether all of them would be that independent, or whether this is a result of the extent to which Jack and Cindy are dominant personalities. That's a good question, and certainly we will see Jack again. He's going to come back, even though he does ascend to personality heaven or wherever he's going at this point. Uh, Cindy won't. Jamail won't. It's just Jack, the one who's a real jerk but does have an impressive mustache. That's going to be a theme this episode, isn't it? Impressive mustaches, yeah, and jerks, I guess. So Sabra acknowledges that Excalibur is is actually pretty good at what they do, and Kurt offers her a place on the team, but her first responsibility is to Israel, so she says no and passes them a mysterious disc. Now, this disc, we know from context, is implied to have what she believes to be the location at which Professor Charles Xavier is being kept prisoner. But that's not made explicit here, and I like the idea that she just sort of passes them a floppy disk, and they have to find out what's on it. And it's something like Ski Free. No, I've seen that disk before. That's definitely disk 1 of 14 of a span zip file of a pirated copy of Team 17's classic multiplayer game Worms. Oh, like Excalibur hasn't already had that for ages. 
Yeah, that's true. They modded in a bunch of different uh, voice sets, like The Simpsons and Monty Python and stuff. Like, you you know Kitty plays that. God, Kitty would be amazing at Worms. She and Doug used to play that a lot. I bet every time she plays it now, she gets all teary and then scowls at Doug Lock. Did Worms exist when Doug was still alive? Uh, you know, it's the sliding Marvel time scale. Hard to say. Hard to say. So, meanwhile, back at Muir Island, Moira decides to maybe look at Doug's intrusion, at Doug Lock's intrusion, as a blessing. Um, that this is maybe a cue to take some time off from her work and to live a little while she still can. Yeah, I mean, we haven't really seen many of the symptoms of the legacy virus manifest for Moira, the way we continually see them manifest for a character like, say, Pyro, but it's been really clear that her days are numbered. And I love the logic she uses in deciding to take a break from researching a cure for the legacy virus. She talks about having a responsibility to people, but to also herself, because, you know, she's a people that's actually super healthy. It is, yeah. She also throws away her copy of Moby Dick. Oh man, the -the on-the-nose symbolism here. Like, yes, yes, she was hunting a white whale that has injured her. Yes, yes, it will ruin her, it'll destroy her. I'm actually surprised they didn't do more with that symbolism and Rory Campbell, the scientist she used to work with, that will literally become a dude named Ahab. You'd think, and yet... Also, did you get a look at the trash can that she threw that book into? It's very fancy. It's so high-tech! It's so high-tech, like it has that ribbed metal tentacle thing that you often see in comic book machines instead of uh, a handle. It's like that freaking ice cream maker from Empire Strikes Back. Uh, Sorry, Camtono. Do you know about that, Jay? I don't. So in the Empire Strikes Back, all the residents of Cloud City, Lando Calrissian's city that he owns, are running away when the Empire shows up. And there's this one dude who's just, like, in one shot, and he's running away, and he's holding what is clearly an ice cream maker. Like, that kind of bucket that you, like, turn around the handle and it makes ice cream. Gotta rescue the ice cream. You don't want that to fall— You do not want Cloud City's signature ice cream recipe to fall into the hands of the Empire. You know, I did go to an ice cream parlor called Cloud City. They had some good non-dairy stuff that agreed with me better. They, they were pretty good. I think it was in Portland. Anyway, point being, in classic Star Wars fashion, everything gets a backstory. So this wasn't just, haha, that guy's got an ice cream maker. No, this was a Camtono used for carrying computer data. And what he was doing is he was running away with the computer memory core to avoid the data that contained a list of, like, rebellion people um, to, to get that away from the Empire. Or possibly also ice cream. No, it's it's an ice cream maker. I think it is. Um. Anyway, uh, I don't know. Maybe Moira's going to make some Moby Dick ice cream. Uh, for her part, Rain is sulking in her room, still furious at Doug Lock, and that brings us to Excalibur number 122, The Search, part one. This issue is written by Ben Robb, penciled by Dale Eaglesham, inked by Scott Koblish, colored by Kevin Tinsley, lettered by Richard Starkings in Comicraft, and Emerson Miranda. So the cover of this issue is Nightcrawler being menaced by the original five X-Men with the caption, X-acuted by the X-Men. It actually kind of reminds me of the cover to Excalibur number 52 way back in the day that had the X-Men fighting Xavier and Jean looking at the reader saying, if this doesn't increase sales, nothing will. Except that was a really good gag and it was drawn by Alan Davis. Yeah, this isn't a gag. I think it's just to increase sales, basically. (sighs) This this was, um, 
July 1998, and this is the first first month that many, but not all, of the X-Books got two page previously on spreads with short character profiles and a recap of relevant past events. Which I think is actually a great idea. Just speaking as somebody who reads comics month to month these days, like, you kind of forget some of the details between months, especially if you've been reading a whole lot of comics, so it's a nice little reminder. Yeah, agreed. Megan, meanwhile, is sitting on the dock of Muir Island waiting for Captain Britain. Still. Again. More. Searching for her beloved, Captain Britain. Searching for signs of life. Of human activity. A ship. A raft. A corpse. Anything. Jeez, Megan, he hasn't even been gone for that long. A corpse? Really? You're like a freaking dog who's pretty sure your person is dead 30 seconds after they go through the front door. Okay, it's funny you say that, because um, I was reading this, and I was thinking about Echo Solomon. Oh, that the the dog that that math professor had back in college? Yeah, who, when he was on vacation, a friend of ours used to sit for, and the dog would just try to get out, try to get out, try to get out, and if... If they it got out of the building where it was, it would run to the outside of the math building and howl. Oh, oh, that dog! What a very good dog. She was she was really fantastic. Oh well. Anyway, Megan's being real mopey. Uh, she was just brooding on a roof back in number one hundred eleven, which I guess was a year ago of comics. So maybe it's been a while. Uh, that said, the art is pretty good here. Dale Eaglesham does draw her hair as freaking amazing. It's like freaking six or seven or more feet long. If you look at how it compares in length to her body, I would say that it's at least eight or nine feet. You know, I'm okay with that. I mean, we get giant silly hair in comics all the time, but she's an elemental metamorph and she's hanging out by the ocean. She's sort of emotionally distraught, so I can see her physical form uh, blending into her surroundings a little bit more. She is um oceanally distraught oh oh nice nice well moira mctaggart watches all this and uh then goes in to comfort another distraught young woman that being wolfsbane who like you mentioned is still pretty pissed at Douglock for ending moira's research quarantine and thus ending the research that could theoretically have saved her um and moira talks about how she's been searching for so much meaning since being infected and now she just really wants to live her life to its fullest And it's really sweet, and I also have to say, the years later retcon and House of X and Powers of Ten, uh, this doesn't jive with that at all. I mean, not that continuity always has to line up, but this era of Moira does not work whatsoever with the current depiction of her. It really doesn't. Yeah, well, that's comics for you. Anyway, Excalibur is hovering in the Midnight Runner over, you know, an ancient Peruvian city turned into a military complex covered in technology and under a pink-domed force field. Uh, Yeah, this is where that uh, copy of Worms, but only the first of 14 discs, and it was a zip file spanned across all of them. Um, This is the information it also contained, in addition to that wonderful old game that I played too much of. This may be where Professor Xavier was being held. This is an Operation Zero Tolerance base. And boy, is it not subtle. Like, you'd think they could have just just found it. Yeah, I mean, I know it's sort of in a valley, in a jungle, but I don't know, people have, like, planes and satellites and stuff. And eyes. Well, they have to be nearby to use those, but yes, yes. That giant pink dome's gotta be visible from space. I, I think so, yeah. 
It's interesting to me that Excalibur doesn't call in the X-Men for this. I mean, you know, Xavier is the founder of the X-Men, and the X-Men have some very heavy hitters. It kind of works, though. It's like they, especially Nightcrawler, are trying to prove that they're still X-Men, which is kind of where this book has really been going. I'll totally give it to Ben Robb. Like, yes, this book is going to end in a couple issues because the X-Men characters are going to come back to the X-Men after so many years. But at least it feels like, especially for Nightcrawler, that's a natural, believable process. Well, and in the meantime, there's precedent to him not really trusting or clicking with the current X-Men. I mean, think about his phone call with Mero. Oh yeah, where he uh, asked her to put on one of the real X-Men? That was just low, Kurt. Come on. Again, I I really dislike Ben Robb's Nightcrawler. I just, I, I think there are characters whose voices he pretty much gets, and Kurt Wagner is not one of them. Yeah, well, I do like how just upset he clearly is. Colossus is not so sure about this plan to basically pull an average D&D party and just charge in. Kurt, I want to see the Professor safe as much as you do. But rushing headlong into the unknown is a mistake. If Cyclops' leadership has taught us anything, it's... Cyclops isn't here, Piotr. This is my call. Speaking of characters Ben Robb doesn't quite get, Douglock is the only non-former X-Men Excalibur member who's here, and he has just become like the goofy pet. Very suddenly. Like, he gets stuck in a tree parachuting down, he gets tangled up in a random python, he complains about hating jungles and wanting to go home. Oh, see, I assumed that part was a reference to Doug's death. Oh yeah, Doug did kind of die on a jungle island, didn't he? Yeah. I kind of miss when Doug Locke was just angsting about being tied into the phalanx and what it was to be human. Like, that was actually a really interesting take on the character. He was a fascinating character for a while. He had a distinct personality and everything. He did. And, like, I'm not against humor. I mean, I will always remember that scene of him and Kitty having a heart-to-heart while sitting on the unconscious body of a goon they'd just beaten up. But this is just, like, cartoon-level slapstick. This is Saturday morning style. And it's not—it's not— Good slapstick. This isn't like I'm. I'm thinking too about our earlier conversations about Captain Britain and and slapstick comedy and Pratt Falls. Yeah, and how Captain Britain really works as that character because he's a character who is built on an archetype that's inherently dignified. Right. Whereas Douglock right here is just he's just silly and goofy and like I don't know making all the weird funny noises Jerry Lewis used to make. I mean, he's basically badly written warlock here. Kind of that, yeah. And man, I hate I hate how negative we're being about this comic. It's because there is genuinely fun, good stuff. I like what's happening with Moira here. Some of the art is phenomenal. I like a lot of what's going on with Megan and ultimately Captain Britain. Yeah. There's good stuff. Again, I think we're just so uh, inclined to be hypercritical of it because it's our baby. It's Excalibur. I mean, Jay, this and New Mutants are the two comics we collected every single issue of painstakingly way back in the day. Well, and it works so hard to evoke older material that I think those comparisons are not only inevitable but invited. No, I think that's valid, because uh, Warren Ellis's run certainly is very different from Old Excalibur, but it doesn't seem to really try to be Old Excalibur. It mm-hmm. has a very distinct voice and is unapologetic about going forward with that voice. Like it or not. And this, again, is specifically setting itself up in comparison to much better runs. 
it is pretty hard to compete with Claremont and Davis, to be fair. Oh, it absolutely is. And I'm again, I'm not saying that that Rob yeah, isn't a perfectly adequate writer. I'm saying that he's he's putting himself in a position that does him pretty much endless disservice. No, that's that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Well, speaking of things that aren't comic relief, back in the comic are a bunch of eviscerated Prime Sentinel corpses as our heroes approach the base. Prime Sentinels, of course, are the people that got partially robotified by Operation Zero Tolerance. Rob decides that he's not only going to set himself up for comparison to early Excalibur, but he's going to just go for broke and make sure that one of the greatest single issues of X-Men of all time is as fresh as possible in readers' minds by having Kurt say, oh, this reminds me of the blue area of the moon, and I hope that this isn't similarly tra- doesn't end similarly tragically. That's right. X-Men 137 is exactly what you want readers to be thinking of when they're holding up your work against it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying you can't reference the Dark Phoenix saga. I'm just saying, like, if you're going to cover Stairway to Heaven, you better be very confident you're going to cover it amazingly well. You know who fucking nailed a Dark Phoenix saga reference? Who's that? Kieran Gillen in AVX. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. The moment, like, it's, it's really subtle, but, like, there's this one point where Magneto just says, and once again, it comes down to five on the moon. That was chilling right there yeah that's how you reference x-men 137 Mm, mm, so good you don't have a character go i hope this is as good as x-men 137 (laughs) i mean i wish it was but speaking of references to old x-men stuff nightcrawler as the team splits up is confronted by the original five x-men from the 60s in their black and yellow costumes what is this an arcade issue uh, no, it turns out these aren't the X-Men. They are Prime Sentinels in holographic disguise. Why? So it turns out they're wearing these disguises because they wanted to calm down the person that's been going around, you know, eviscerating their comrades. We'll get to that. But they also just attack Kurt, which isn't I mean- very reassuring. Well, as we mentioned, the two themes of this arc are mustaches and people who are jerks. They don't have any mustaches, although I think some have beards, so they're jerks. Because they don't have mustaches. I mean, I have a mustache right now, and I think I'm pretty nice. Nightcrawler has a mustache all over his entire body. Good point. Good point. Well, these Prime Sentinel jerks want Excalibur's help after the fight ends once they finally mention they don't want to fight— But first, they want Excalibur to listen to a ton of exposition. So here's the deal. This secluded Operation Zero Tolerance research facility took in evacuees and prisoners from the North American bases, as as those were shut down. And those included one prisoner who fought back and killed most of the OZT folks. And the survivors... This is the guy who the survivors thought maybe they could calm down by making themselves look like the original five X-Men, which if they'd actually read any Silver Age X-Men, they would realize was a terrible strategy. That's right, because this is Mimic. Do you remember Mimic? Do you remember Calvin Rankin? Occasionally. 
So back in the Silver Age, he was a dude who could, well, mimic the powers of any super characters near him. He's not a mutant exactly. It was one of those science-given abilities. But he fought the X-Men at one point. Xavier wiped his mind, as Xavier did to basically everybody in the Silver Age. But later, he joined and even led the X-Men to help them against the menace of Factor 3, a big Silver Age villain group. That lasted for a few issues until Professor X was like, all right, dude, I mean, you're powerful, but you're such an asshole. Please don't talk to my son ever again. He lost his powers at this point, and, and he had, he had by, by, by now permanently absorbed all of the original five X-Men's powers. Because Mimic's deal is that he can, he can replicate the powers of any, any mutant, maybe any superpowered being, but I know, definitely any mutant near him. Um, while while they're near him, but if they stay close to him for long enough, he keeps the powers. Kind of like the Super Scroll with the Fantastic Four, for that part. And he's spent that much time with the X-Men, so he's he's got all of their powers. How much control he has over those powers varies significantly and tends to be heavily, heavily limited, and that's one of his biggest weaknesses, and it's a running theme that we're going to see really continue through probably the present day, honestly. I think so, yeah. And some of that, him losing control of his powers, some of that's based on an old Hulk story that we didn't really cover that also involves, I think, Wolverine and some other characters. But more recently, we saw Mimic working for Onslaught. And he was thus apparently taken into custody, along with Professor X, by Operation Zero Tolerance at the conclusion of the Onslaught storyline. Oh dear. And here he is, he's clearly been here for a while, he's bound into one of those big, unnecessarily complicated machines with the turbine manacles, he's grown a great big beard during his captivity. And, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens next issue, but first, let's head back to Muir Island once again, because someone we haven't seen in a long time has returned. Farron. Uh, no, that's later. Brian Braddock has come back on a boat, and Megan, her eyes fill with hope and joy and love as she realizes this, and as the boat greets her with an... I choose to think that's not the boat's horn. That is actually Brian Braddock's sheer attraction at seeing his hot fiancé. So, so this is the sound of his attraction, or he is making that sound to express his attraction? Yeah, like, you know, his eyes bug out and his tongue unrolls long enough that it uh, it hits the floor and his heart kind of presses out through his shirt. And that brings us to Excalibur number 123, Lost and Found, The Search Part 2. Once again, written by Ben Rabb, penciled by Trevor Scott, inked by Scott Hanna, colored by Kevin Tinsley, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. So we're going to start back in Peru, uh, fighting the Mimic, and Kitty decides that the best possible move is to glitch out Calvin's restraints and free him. And as far as I can tell, the only explanation I can think for the other thing that happens is that immediately before doing so, one of the members of Excalibur shaves his beard. Because he's just got, like, a giant impressive mustache now. He's got long hair and a big mustache in addition, in addition to his beast-like physique and permanent wings and stuff. It is an awesome fucking look. But, again, he did have a full beard on the last page of the last issue. Wait, maybe it wasn't actually a beard. Maybe it was part of the electronic restraint system. Oh, okay, so, like, the part that held his chin down, that held his head in place, was just kind of fuzzy? Yeah. No, I'm into that. 
Although I kind of like the idea. I mean, Nightcrawler did recently shave off his own beard. Maybe he's just in a beard shaving mode. It's certainly more polite than drawing dicks on somebody's forehead. Sort of like when the cat used to groom herself and then would just groom whatever was near her. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, once he's freed, uh, Calvin Mimic kinda remembers the X-Men, but then someone mentions Prime Sentinels and he freaks out and attacks them all over again. And mostly, he smashes the almost invincible Douglock across the room, and Douglock, again, is just being over-the-top ridiculous. Yeah, he's like the Jar Jar Binks of the team. Yeah, he's using pig Latin and yelling not the hair when he's being swung around. It is a choice. Meanwhile, the Prime Sentinels are none too happy. One of them wants to go kill all the mutants, but another blasts him back into line and subjects him to a lecture on morality. We all have made a huge mistake when we sold our souls to that devil, Bastion. He baited us with his twisted promises of genetic purity, and we bit, hook, line, and sinker. But it's all over now. This is the aftermath, the retribution, the judgment upon us all. Like it or not, those mutants are the only chance of salvation we're ever going to get. Excalibur, meanwhile, keeps attacking Mimic, even when he begs them to stay away because he's starting to mimic their powers. And it's interesting to me that he doesn't just mimic their mutant powers here, he also mimics Kitty's martial arts abilities. Yeah, like, whether he's got sort of Taskmaster-style abilities where he can mimic people's skills as well, again, it's very inconsistent. But I think my justification for that is he spent a long time getting powered up uh, by Onslaught and getting a little help controlling his powers from Onslaught. So I'm sure his powers are all kinds of screwed up by Onslaught's omnipotence at this point. I think they're probably pretty unpredictable. Fair enough. His weakness, however, is electricity, and Colossus ends up holding him still while Douglock zaps him, and this also shorts out the big pink telekinetic dome, which I guess was either Mimic's telekinesis or somehow being powered by him. I mean, we do know that pink is the official color of telekinesis, so yeah, I'll buy that. Now, the Prime Sentinels head out with some regrets and regained moral complexity, and Kitty wants to track them down, but Kurt says, no, they're going to leave them alone. Hard as it may be, we must find it within ourselves to forgive them their sins, and pray they never find it within themselves to commit them again. Spoken like a man who still sends Mother's Day cards to Margali Sardos. <laughs> yup. So Mimic finally chills out, and the team decides to bring him back to Muir Island to heal and continue to groom his amazing mustache. I love this mustache. And, like, he keeps it for the rest of Excalibur, the series. It's wonderful. Good. I mean, there are only, like, two more issues. Of amazing mustache? What if they were just two issues about his mustache? You know, that would be a shift, but I would not object. That would be maybe a better note for the series to go out on. Well, the series is indeed getting close to going out, and one of the ways it's doing so is focusing more and more on the former X-Men thinking about what their place in the world should be. Because remember, they came here to try to free Professor Xavier, to assuage especially Nightcrawler's guilt about not being there to prevent Xavier's capture, and Xavier wasn't here. Not only was he not here, but when they ask Mimic... He's never, he hasn't heard of him being in this or any other OCT facility that Mimic's been in contact with. 
And Kitty tries to comfort Nightcrawler to tell him, hey, it's okay, you're still doing good work, we've all been doing good work. You were out there fighting for his dream. You just did it on other fronts with the rest of us. Sounds like you're trying awfully hard to justify Excalibur's existence in the current scheme of things, Kastian. Maybe. But you remember what Charles always said? Once an X-Man, always an X-Man. And thus, though the sign hasn't been switched from open to closed, we start the process of stacking chairs on the tables and sweeping the floor of this comic. But not before heading back to Muir Island for some hot romance. Oh, it's so great. This actually opens the issue, and I love the first page. We have this wonderful image of Captain Britain and Megan kissing within this frame that's like a gilded heart, complete with Cupid and a bunch of British flags all around it, with a smaller frame of him on the left rakishly looking at her on the right, and her on the right blowing a kiss to him on the left. It is delightful. Trevor Scott does an amazing job, and on this page, Ben Robb's narration is pretty damn good, too. A kiss is all it takes. All the doubt. All the fear. All the insecurity born of lost faith. They all disappear in the caress of a loved one's lips. It's at moments like these when hope, adrift on an endless sea of confused emotion, is suddenly found. And the world is wonderful once more. That is so earnest and lovely, and I have zero bad things to say about that. That's one of the things that I think does continue working right up until the end. And I mean, we'll see the series end with the wedding of Captain Britain and Meghan, but their relationship is just so wonderful, and they have earned it. They, over the course of this entire series, have gotten to be such a genuinely healthy, wonderful couple after going through such shit and so much personal growth, especially Brian. And it's lovely to see. It's heartening. It's hopeful, like the narration says. Yeah, if there is a single thread that has linked the whole of this comic series, it's the romance between Captain Britain and Megan. I am so goddamn invested in the two of them. So they have some midair makeouts, and Brian is a bit freaked out because his powers are gone now, apparently for good, which means, among other things, that he can no longer fly. And he's worried this might make Megan less interested in marrying him, and she is amused because he is absolutely incorrect. Oh yeah, she's like, oh you silly man. He is. He is a silly man. He is a silly man. And so over tea with Moira and Wolfsbane, Captain Britain and Megan decide they're gonna get married, like, next week. At that rate, they're gonna have to call people on the phone. Like, there, there won't be time to send invitations. I know. I mean, we know how this goes. We've each been married twice. Well, I, I, I'm just thinking about superhero teams and their their aversion to phone calls. Mm, true. I wonder how they handle save the date cards. But Megan is so excited that she once again references an all-time other classic issue. <gasps> oh, this is all so exciting. Just like Cyclops' and Phoenix's wedding. I hope I look half as beautiful as Jean Grey did. And I know we complained about this sort of thing. And I'm, I'm going to give it to her, because it's just so charming. And it continues to be charming as Wolfsbane and Moira take Megan shopping for a wedding dress. It's hard for her to try things on because she keeps changing shape and size, but then she finds the perfect dress, which we of course don't actually see. Alas, this triumph is, is shaded by the fact that she's still feeling guilty about having had feelings for Piotr, and now she's gotta talk to Brian about him. 
There's a wonderful panel that Trevor Scott handles beautifully of her biting one side of her lip as tears start to well up in her eyes, and she just quietly says to herself, Crumbs. It's fun. So, yeah, this it's just all over the place. We are now two issues away from the end of Excalibur Volume 1, from the end of certainly one of both of our favorite comics ever, and some of the stuff is great, and some of the stuff is very not great, and man, my emotions are just all over the place with this. Yeah, it honestly just makes me want to go back and reread the old stuff. And that's the thing. We always can. That's something we talk about a lot on this show. Like, if there are certain runs or certain parts of runs that don't click with you, the stuff that does click with you is always going to be there. I've still got those, like, five Claremont and Davis and three Davis teal trades of Excalibur on the shelf six feet to my left. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you saying that when something is retconned, the original story still exists? It's a controversial statement, but I stand by it. My god! Who we also stand by is our listeners, and they've got questions. Ether Fay emailed us to ask, I was reading Extreme X-Men when Storm was once again surprised by yet another evil tyrant kidnapping her so he could ask for her hand in marriage. My question has two parts. If a variant Storm existed who agreed to marry every person who asked her to marry them, how many people would be in her harem? And how many armies slash kingdoms slash galactic empires slash entire dimensions would worship her as a goddess? I know she would have Dr. Doom and Letveria, T'Challa and Wakanda, Dracula and his army of vampires, and now Khan and his multiple dimensions, but how many other times has Storm turns down this very specific offer? Okay, that's four. Five would be Archon of Polemicus, um, who almost proposed in the Uncanny X-Men Annual 5 after kidnapping her in the Uncanny X-Men Annual 3. And he, he's got a planet. Yeah, he was the Empyrean of the planet, which is a pretty cool title. Um, so those are... As far as I know, those are the, like, serious high-level monarchs who've proposed her. I had it in my head that Loki had tried to marry her in the Asgardian Wars, but no, no, he just brainwashed her and tried to turn her into a thunder god, which he could then control. Loki ain't got no time for marriage. He's too busy with, you know, mischief. And we all know that Namor only dates blondes. Mm, true. Well, I mean, Forge did actually propose to Storm as well, even though he's not a supervillain, but he then, like, unproposed immediately without even giving her a chance to respond because he's a very bad boyfriend. Yeah, so I, I guess that's six? That's, that's potentially harem of six. She would really only be uh, leading a group of angry demon ghosts who tend not to cooperate very much, though, so that part wouldn't work out. Oh, wait, the Shadow King tried to marry Storm once to make her his dark bride? Uh, we'll be getting to that in, like, a couple of episodes. Yeah, um, and I, I'm sure we're missing someone, like, or possibly multiple someones. This barely counts, but it's fresh in my mind. Uh, Travis, the suspicious inventor guy in Anne Nascenti's current Storm flashback miniseries, um, at the end of the last issue that came out as we record this, seemed like he was about to propose, and since he's like a rich white inventor guy on the internet, um, I'm pretty sure he probably has an army of people on Twitter who worship him, but I don't know if they would worship her. They'd probably just be all incel jerk about the whole thing. Adam Linthicum... Uh, tweeted to us to ask about something that happens in Avengers Annual Number 10. Um, specifically, a little girl named Maddie Pryor is released from the hospital in the background and tells a cop that she was sick but is better now. And Adam says, I don't remember hearing about this cameo before. Did I miss a mention? So we mentioned this a bit in the cold open about the Elizabeth Wilfords in episode 421, 
which is that Chris Claremont did have an occasional habit of reusing names. He had another Jubilee before the Jubilee we know and love showed up, and in fact, he had two Maddie Priors, Maddie slash Madeline Priors. The second one is the big one who became the Goblin Queen. This character shows up for one panel ever. The interesting thing about the Madelines is that both of them are actually named after a real person, that being Maddie Pryor of the real-life band Steel Eyes Band. Yeah, we mentioned that extremely briefly way back in episode 24, but uh, I would forgive anyone for not remembering that. Claremont did that as well. You may remember that Lila Cheney's band Cats Laughing is a real band. And yeah, in this case, both Maddie Pryor and Madeline Pryor are named after the same musician. There's even a scene in the lead-up to Inferno where, in a flashback, a little girl Madeline Pryor is singing a Steel Eye Span song, thus really calling a lot of real-life and comic book universe continuity into question. That said... I think you could totally decide that that little girl from Avengers Annual Number 10 was actually like an early psychic manifestation of the clone that Sinister was trying to get functional at the time. I mean, her ambiguous dialogue about having been sick and now feeling better, you could totally tie that in. And I choose to. I think comics are more fun when you, you know, just add some intentionality that may not have been there the first time. Decide for yourself that it was all a big tapestry engineered perfectly in the writer's mind from the start. Alternately, Madeline Pryor is the Jane Smith of the Marvel Universe. It's just a real common name. <laughs> right. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts, and today the microphone goes to, oh my, Sexy Gambit. Despite claims to the contrary... Gambit be a romantic, true and true. And as such, Gambit appreciate the value of expressing one's attraction to the object of one's desire in a respectful yet enthusiastic way. So when the former Captain Britain greet his fiancée Megan from the boat with a hearty, <coughs> that, Miss Fraser may says, betray romantique. But that said, take it from Gambit, Braddock. You can do better than that. For instance, La Belle Abby V. Gambit be thrilled to see you. And Gambit... <coughs> and Jabo, très impressif. Gambit can't help but... how you treat the person you love. You're welcome. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter, who's really earning his keep this week and who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. 
Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and free of mattress ads, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, X-Factor turns over a new leaf... And then abruptly ends. (laughs) 